John 3, 1 through 8. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So, uh, the other night, uh, my wife uh, Alyssa and I, we were, we, were, we were hanging out with a friend of ours. Uh, and the three of us were hanging out, and the two of them, uh, Alyssa and our friend, they, they opened up this new bottle of wine. Uh, and they were talking about how, how good it was. And so like, I grabbed the bottle, and, and I noticed, like, oh, I've never actually never, never had this one before. Like, I, I tend to enjoy Pinot Noirs. This was a Pinot blend from like three different wineries in the area. And so because I was intrigued... I grab a glass from the kitchen, I gave myself a small pour, and I take this tiny sip and, and, and realize that it was not what I expected, right? Like they, they were really talking up like how great it was and I, I take a sip and I'm like, this is not what I expected. Now, I'm not a big wine guy. So you, like, you have some people that are like really big uh, wine, wine people, like you know, Chris Jameson's a sommelier, uh, and, uh, and, and you'll have guys that like, uh, are really good at, at, at picking up on these so-called notes. Right? Uh, like, oh, aromas of dark currants and, and apricots and roasted hazelnut. But for me, it's like, I don't know, fermented wine juice, right? Those are the notes that I pick up on. But I knew enough to know that this wine tasted funky. This should not taste this way. I don't know why they're talking about how great it tastes because this did not taste right. It tasted, the way I described it to them is it, is it tasted extra fermented. Because it had like these tiny bubbles. I was like, it's kind of like kombucha, right? Like little, little, little tiny bubbles that were like uh, resting on my, on my tongue. And, and they're like, no, you're, we, we don't taste that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not picking up on these tiny bubbles. And I'm sipping it. I'm like, no, like it, it, you don't feel those, those, tiny, those tiny bubbles. Uh, and they're telling me how wrong I am uh, that there are no tiny bubbles. And so Alyssa, she grabs my glass. She takes a sip and she goes, actually, yours does taste different. And we're looking at each other all confused, like, that doesn't make any sense. And then Alyssa asked me the, the sort of kicker question, and she goes, wait, where did you get that glass? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, earlier that day, she began soaking a wine glass in dishwashing liquid. And that was the one that I grabbed. And so that bubbly fermentation was actually dish soap, <laughs> right? So we're like, I'm all grossed out about it, uh, and... And, 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 and the, the, like all this, this, this soapiness, that sensation was dish soap. Now it turns out that the problem was actually not with the drink like I expected. The problem was with the glass. It wouldn't have mattered if I had uh, a new Pinot like this one or an old familiar one. Uh, it wouldn't matter if I had lemonade in it or water in the glass. The soapy sensation would still be there. What I needed was a different glass. What I needed was a, a clean one. And that 
in some sense is what we all need spiritually. In some sense, we all need that spiritually because as we've seen at the beginning of this series that we are all born, as theologians say, totally depraved, totally corrupted by nature and by choice. And so we need to be made new. The Bible says our lives flow from our hearts. And so if our hearts have been corrupted by sin, then anything that will flow out of our hearts will be tainted by it. What we need is a new glass. What we need is a new heart. What we need is a sovereign God to effectively awaken us from our spiritual slumber to a new life in Christ. And so that brings us into our fourth doctrine of grace that we see this week. It's the doctrine of irresistible grace. The doctrine of irresistible grace. Here's how we define that. Irresistible grace teaches us that God effectively calls the elect, other, who are otherwise hopeless sinners, to himself, and he then effectively awakens them to the beauty of the gospel and a new life in Christ. God effectively calls the elect to himself and effectively awakens them to the beauty of the gospel and a new life in Christ. I want you to look at the order of salvation that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, verse 80, here's, here's, here's what this says. Here's what Paul says. He says that those those people, those whom he, God, predestined, he also called. In other words, all that God has predestined, he called. Not one that he's predestined will he not call. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, every single person that God has foreknown and loved before the foundation of the world, those people will be called by him and will be saved, justified by him. He doesn't lose a single one. This grace, we could say, is simply irresistible. Simply irresistible. And so as we unpack this doctrine of God's irresistible grace. I've got two points for us this morning. The first one from our definition is that those that he loves, he effectually calls. Those he loves, he effectually calls. In the mystery of the way that, God's, that God works, those that he loves, he will call in a way that effects, that, that, that brings about their salvation. Now, I mentioned early in our series how it's popular. It's popular for people to say, you know, that salvation kind of works like this. That you were, you know, we're all, it's like we're all drowning in an ocean, flailing around. God threw you a life raft. But then that life raft is useless until you go like Depeche Mode and reach out and touch faith. And when you do that, then God will reward you by sort of pulling you and reeling you in. But the problem with that analogy is the Bible. <laughs> well, that analogy is the Bible because the Bible actually paints a picture that is less like you're dog paddling at the surface and more that you're a dead corpse at the bottom of the ocean floor. 
God doesn't merely throw you a lifeline. He dives to the bottom of the ocean floor to drag your dead weight to the surface so he can breathe life into your spiritual lungs. There's a stunning picture of what this looks like in Ezekiel chapter 37. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there this morning. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 37. Here's the backstory of Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel is a, he's a prophet uh, of, uh, of Israel uh, around 590 BC. And at, at that point in time, the superpowers of the world were like at war with one another. It's like World War Negative Five, right? So all the, all the nations are colliding with one another and there's this thick layer of just darkness and violence and anger and depravity over the earth as the nations are just slaughtering one another. And Israel, which is God's elect people in the Old Testament, Israel, their cities get burned to the ground by their enemies. So they're God's people, but they've been been unfaithful to God. And they're in this kind of weird spiritual season. And their cities get burned to the ground by their enemies, and they're deported from their land, and things just feel hopeless and lost for them by the time you get to chapter 37. They were like the rotting corpse at the bottom of the sea. And it's with that sort of background, that sort of, sort of, sort of backdrop of despair in mind that God gives us a vision, uh, gives a vision to the prophet Ezekiel. And here's what it says in Ezekiel 37. With that going on in the background, the Lord speaks to Ezekiel. He writes about in chapter 37, he says, the hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them and behold, there were many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry. And so really quick, this picture that you have is, is, is Ezekiel's given this vision by God where he comes up to this valley, and this valley is full of bones. And he says these bones are, are very dry, which is a way of saying that, that they've been like this for a while. They're not like freshly picked, right? Like have you ever seen CSI? Like when you have really dry bones, uh, that means they've been dead for a while. They've been sitting there for a while. And then verse 3, he says, Ezekiel says that the Lord said to him, Son of man, can these bones, can these bones live? And I answered, oh, Lord God, you know. He's saying, I don't know, but, but if anyone would know, Lord, you would know. And in verse 4, it says that the Lord, he says, the Lord said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Now, this right here is the effectual call. The word of the Lord is the ordinary means that God always uses to bring life where there was once death. And so, so God says to Ezekiel, prophesy to these bones, say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, to you, O bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and I will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. This amazing picture that he gives us. <laughs> and in the context, in these, in, the, in these next several verses, 
Ezekiel, we see that he preaches, he prophesies over these bones like the Lord asked him to. He preaches this good news that the Lord gave him over these bones. And the picture we see in the rest of the chapter is just magical. You see that the ground starts to rumble like Indiana Jones style. The ground starts to rumble, the bones start to rattle, and then they start coming together in this vision. And then the flesh and skin begin to grow, and then this army of bones, as Ezekiel calls it, come to life by the very breath of God. This is one of the most famous, vivid, stunning visions that we have in all the Old Testament prophetic books. I want you to notice the order order of events in this chapter. In Ezekiel 37, first there's despair, and then there's election, and then there's calling, and then there's regeneration. This is Romans 8. In Ezekiel 37, these are the doctrines of grace in Ezekiel 37 in the Old Testament. Just when all seemed hopeless and final, as final as death itself, the Lord promises hope and new life. The Lord says, look, I'm going to put you back together. I will make you new. I won't leave you in that state. I will step into the brokenness. I will step into the chaos. I will step into your grave and bust it open from the inside. And then bone by bone, flesh by flesh, I will breathe life into you. And where the stench of death once lingered, you will be the aroma of my power and presence. This is how God works when he brings new life into our hearts. If you're a believer of Jesus, a follower of Jesus this morning, this radical reworking, this radical work of new life, giving, imparting new life is what God has done for you. This is how God works when he brings new life. You and I, apart from the sheer grace of God, are dead, dry, and rotten like bones in the valley. And just like those bones, we can't call out for Jesus to waken us from our slumber. He needs to call out to us to rise and walk in newness of life. Only the voice of the one who said at the dawn of time, let there be light, can have the power to say to the valley of dyed bones, let there be life. Let there be life. The Apostle Paul echoes this sentiment in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 when he says, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you know God? Do you know Jesus? Do you see how wonderful and amazing and glorious and beautiful he is? If if so, Paul says, that's because he's shown that into your hearts. Well, there was once darkness. God made light shine. You didn't do that. He did that. You know what that is? That's grace. That's amazing grace. Imagine if Ezekiel's vision went like this. He sees a horde of 
Instead of a valley of dry bones, imagine that instead he just sees a horde of tired people waiting in the water. Slowly drowning. And then God tells Ezekiel, prophesy to these people. I'm going to go around on a lifeboat, pass out these floaties, but tell everyone that they have to reach out for them, but if they do, then I'm going to reel them in. Not the same stunning picture, is it? <laughs> it's not the same stunning picture. I mean, but that's what makes the grace of God so amazing. But when the, Lord of the Lord, when the word of the Lord goes out, it has the power to bring life where there was death. It has the power to animate, animate what was once dry bones. The Spirit beckons and calls, and you respond. When the Spirit of God is at work in your heart, He brings you to this place where you start to believe, and then He begins to put, put flesh on your spiritually dry bones. Amazing grace. The second thing I want us to see is that those that God calls in this way are effectually born again. That's our second point, that those that he calls, he effectually uh, causes to be born again. Now we need to talk about this phrase, born again, because it's sort of one of those cliche terms that, uh, that can kind of carry some baggage for some of us, right? Like, like for some of us, when we hear that word born again, we think it has like po political connotations or overtones for it. But that phrase, born again, is a biblical phrase. It comes from John 3 and other places, and it's this idea of getting just totally renovated, a total upheaval of who you are. You get renovated and made new from the inside out, a new glass, a new heart. Because it's not just that we sin, but it's that we, we want to sin. That's our problem. Our problem isn't just that we choose to sin, it's that we want to. We are sinners by nature and choice. We're wired for it from the start. And so you don't have to look far to see sin nature in the world, right? You don't have to look far to know that people are, generally speaking, like pretty awful. You just spend 30 seconds on Twitter, like Oscar did this morning. <laughs> or 10 seconds in your city's Facebook group. Right? The darkest spot of depravity, if you're paying attention, is our own hearts. Our own hearts. That apart from the grace of God, we are drawn away from what is right. Without the grace of God, we are drawn away from what is right, true, good, and beautiful. And we are drawn, 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 drawn towards what is harmful and hurtful to God and others. And so we need to be born again. That's what that phrase truly means from a biblical sense. Now Jesus, he teaches this in John 3. And in John 3, there's this religious leader named Nicodemus who's got all these questions about the kingdom of God. And he comes up to Jesus and he says, hey, look, rabbi, teacher, teach me, to tell me, how, can, how I want in on the kingdom of God. Tell me how I can be a part of it. And then Jesus answers him in John 3, verse 3, and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He says, look, if you want to in on the kingdom of God, you, you need to be born again first. You need to be born again first. No one can see it. 
much less take part in it, the kingdom of God, unless you are spiritually reborn, made new. Here, the, the wild thing in this verse is that we see that Jesus is saying that, that you and I need to be born again before we can even begin to believe. This is what theologians call the doctrine of regeneration. This picture that God is making you new, renovating your heart. The question is, do you believe first or are you born again first? It kind of sounds like a trick question, right? Like that, that, like that old question, like which comes first, the chicken or the egg? But the scriptures are clear in so many places, especially here in John 3, that regeneration comes before faith, not vice versa. Doesn't mean that you don't have faith. Doesn't mean that you don't seek after uh, God. But it just means that like in the start, the reason that any of us seek after God, the reason that any of us have the gift of faith is because God has done a work in our hearts. Regeneration comes before faith, not vice versa. No one believes without being born again, and no one is born again who doesn't believe. Now, some people don't like that because our finite man, minds, like, we can't handle these categories, right? They'll say, well, that just makes it sound like we're these pre-programmed robots without any real free choice. But no, it's more like we were broken and malfunctioned and God was kind enough to fix us so that we start to work again. So that we work like we were originally designed to. So that we actually can and will freely follow after him. Follow hard after him. That's what the doctrine of regeneration is like. Verse 4 of John 3, it says that Nicodemus, he replies to Jesus after Jesus says, look, you got to be born again to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, he's kind of scratching his head and he responds to Jesus and says, well, how can a man be born when he's old? Which is kind of a fair question, right? He says, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's just pointing out like how, how odd and strange this statement is from Jesus. But Jesus in verse 5, he doubles down on this idea, and he says, no, truly, truly, which is his way of saying, don't miss this. Jesus says, truly, truly, don't miss this. I'm saying to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Jesus is saying, look, dogs produce dogs, right? Dogs beget dogs. Birds beget birds. Sinners beget sinners. And so if you want to be made new, if you want in on the kingdom of life, the kingdom of God, then you need to be born again by the Spirit. He says you need to be born of water and of Spirit, which is a way of saying you need to be baptized and have this real encounter with the Spirit. The picture in John of the new birth compared to our physical birth right here in this passage is, is, is honestly brilliant. It's brilliant here because it really gets to the heart of what God is after when he calls his people. I mean, think about it. How do you know that you were physically born? And think about it. If I were to ask you, hey, how do you know 
that you were actually physically born? Like you'd be, I know that's a strange question. <laughs> but just work, like, work with me on this. Like how do you, if somebody walked up to you and asked you, how do you know that you were physically born? The answer should be obvious. You'd be like, well, I'm here, right? That, that, that's how I know I'm physically, I'm alive, I'm here. I wouldn't be here if I wasn't at one point physically born. You wouldn't say, like, here's how I know that, 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 that I'm, I'm born is because my Facebook profile says I was born in 1983. <laughs> you wouldn't say, I know I was physically born because, look, here's my birth certificate, right? You wouldn't say, I know I was physically born because there were, there were people present, like a doctor and a nurse, my parents, uh, that were there to witness my birth. You would just say, look, I was physically born because here I am living and breathing in my growing body. So then, how do you know that you are spiritually born again? Think about that. How do you know that you're spiritually born again? The answer should be just as simple. Because I'm alive to God. I'm alive to God. He has made me new. I used to hate him, but now I love him. I used to want to have nothing to do with him, and now I want to give my life to him. I once was a slave to my sins, but now I'm free to walk in newness of life. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was dead. Spiritually dead in my sins, but now I am alive in him. I love him. I desire him. I know him. I live for him. The proof that I was born again in Christ is the new life I have in Christ today. And see, some of us, though, when we think of that question, how do I know that I'm born again? We might say, we might say, well, because I was baptized in 2010, right? I got the shirt to prove it. I filled out a connect card and asked Jesus into my heart. I walked down to the field at the Harvest Crusade three years in a row. And to be clear, like I'm not knocking all of those things as meaningful moments in like a person's spiritual life. They very much could be, but but they're not evidence of being born again. They're not. The primary evidence that you are born again is a new life in Jesus. Here's what I don't want you to miss from this, is that when you are born again, you are made new in the fullest sense of that phrase. You begin to grow in what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. If you are made new, then you will walk new. I want you to hear like this, this, this sober word from this doctrine of regeneration that we see in John 3. Like if your life is not marked by a new life in Christ, then you got to ask, like, do, is there really evidence that I'm born again? Like some of us have this false security that we belong to Jesus because someone told us, like, if you ask Jesus into your heart, then you're saved. But that whole asking Jesus into your heart thing is nowhere in the scriptures. Try and find it. 
Again, I'm not saying that if, if, that if you did that, that that wasn't like a meaningful thing in your spiritual walk. But what the Bible says is that when God calls us, when He gives us new desires, we're born again, we can now begin to freely walk in Him. Dead to the old self, alive to the new. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. It's so much bigger, so much better, so much beautiful and more compelling than just ask Jesus into your heart. Whatever that means. The gospel is so much better than that. The gospel is that God has made you new. He's renovated your spiritual life. You once were dead in your sins, but now you're alive in Christ. What's in the scriptures about what God does in us is so much better, so much more beautiful. Read about it in Ephesians 2. We've looked at this time and time again in our, our series through the doctrines of grace. But I want you to really sit on these verses, meditate on these verses when Paul says that God, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were, what, dead in our trespasses, even when we were dead, he made us alive. Did you make yourself alive? You didn't do that. He did that. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And even this faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. As I heard recently about this, uh, um, lo- he's a local Lutheran theologian named Rod Rosenblatt, and someone once asked him, uh, they, they, didn't, they were reading Ephesians 2, and, and they, didn't, they didn't like what they were reading, and so they asked, uh, they asked him, uh, well, 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 like, don't we contribute anything to our salvation? We've got to contribute something to our salvation. And Rod's response was, yeah, we do contribute one thing, our sin. Our sin. Our need for grace. The only thing that we bring to the table is our need for grace. And Paul says in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, all of this, the entire Christian life, is a gracious work of God from beginning to to end. That's why we can sing all glory be to Christ. It is his gracious work from the very beginning to the very end. That doesn't mean that you don't exercise faith. It doesn't mean that you don't have a choice. It doesn't mean that you're not responsible to repent and believe. The Bible does say that too. It's a mystery how it all works out, right? It's a mystery. The Bible teaches that, that God is fully sovereign, but it also changes that we are fully responsible. So we don't try and balance out the two. We just got to marvel at the mystery of the fact that these are both true. It's a beautiful paradox. It simply means that somehow, mysteriously, even the faith that we exercise is still a gift from him. That God is our good savior and our sovereign helper when we were left utterly helpless in a dry valley of bones.
This is good news. This is amazing grace. So what then should this, what should this do to us? If this is true, if this is, if this doctrine of irresistible grace is true, what should this produce in us? Because we've said throughout this series that theology and doctrine is not just for mental exercises in our heads. It should actually produce something in our hearts. The first thing I want you to see is that what it produces in our hearts is it allows us to give God all the glory in our worship. If what the scriptures are teaching is true in this, then God gets all the glory in our worship of him. When you begin to grasp the mysterious reality that from beginning to end, God is both the author and the finisher of your saving faith from the Father's sovereign plan to the Son's saving work to the Spirit opening your eyes to who Jesus is and what he's done for you. He did it all. That should cause you, that should spur you to praise him. To give him all the glory. That's what Peter, the fumbling apostle, bursts out. This, this is why he bursts out in spontaneous worship at the beginning of his letter to a group of Christians. In 1 Peter chapter 1, I want you to see how Peter starts his letter to uh, this group of Christians. In 1 Peter 1 verse 3, he says to them, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be what? Born again. How? According to his great mercy. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. <coughs> that beautiful reality that God in his mercy has caused us to be born again, it makes Peter's heart sing. He says, blessed be God. It makes him worship. It makes him sing. Peter didn't have to wear his emotions on his sleeve when he started his letter like this. He didn't have to burst out in praise and worship in verse 3 right here. He could have just gotten to teaching them about the doctrine of regeneration and, 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 and an irresistible grace. Like he, he could have just said, hey, look, here's some things I want to talk to you guys about. We've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Like he, he could have just gone on to like didactic sort of teaching. But instead... Instead, what do we see Peter do? He starts his letter by bursting forth in awe and wonder and praise and worship, almost like he can't contain himself. He says, blessed be God. Why? Because he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The most appropriate response to the mercy of God in our spiritual rebirth is praise. God gets all the glory. Blessed be God. Second thing I want you to see, what it produces in us, is that it gives, it helps us to give others the hope of the gospel through evangelism. You see, one of the things that, that this doctrine should produce in us is a heart for evangelism. 
We want to give others the hope of the gospel through evangelism. This is the beautiful paradox of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. It's actually because we know that God draws his people to himself that we shouldn't that that that, that shouldn't keep us on the bench in in and on the sidelines. It should actually spur us on to go with a strong and bold obedience to make disciples and share the hope of the gospel with others. We actually see how this works in Acts 18. In Acts 18, when the Apostle Paul and his friend Silas are evangelizing throughout Macedonia, and some people are getting saved, but most of them are sort of rejecting them. Most people are rejecting Paul, resisting Paul, slandering them, throwing sort of tomatoes at them, right? He's feeling discouraged by this. And Paul, in his discouragement, that night, he has this vision of Jesus in a dream. In Acts 18, verse 9, it says, The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Go on sharing the gospel. Go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you. <coughs> no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. He says to Paul, look, he encourages Paul with two words. He says on the one hand, look, Paul, don't be discouraged because I have your back. And he also says, don't be discouraged because I have their names. There are many in this city. There are many in this community. There are many in these neighborhoods who are my people. So don't give up. I'm with you. I'm going to save them. I'm going to make them new. You're my instrument of grace in Macedonia. So don't be discouraged. Be bold. You see, when we get the doctrine of irresistible grace, it actually makes us more bold in evangelism. It actually makes us more hopeful in evangelism. Even when it seems like we're not seeing fruit and we're prone to be discouraged, we can lean on the words of Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning, and you just need to be encouraged in that. I'm thinking personally of a friend of mine who was so discouraged, like last year, when he thought he may have like botched sharing the gospel at a family member's deathbed. You see, God can and often does use imperfect instruments like us for his purposes. The power to save is not in the instrument. It is in the hand of the one who uses the instrument. That's what J.I. Packer said. The power to save is not in the instrument. It's in the hand of the one who uses the instrument. You see, knowing the doctrine of irresistible grace should fuel our lives on mission. It's not that we have to be on mission because God depends on us. It's that we get to participate in his sovereign work. That's what we're doing here. That's what church planning is. It's participating in God's sovereign work. We plant another waters, but God gives the growth and he gets all the glory. Maybe you're here this morning. You don't know if you're saved. 
but you feel drawn by the preaching of this word. You feel compelled by the grace of our Christ. You feel like a pile of dry bones and you're starting to feel and sense like this rumbling in your soul. If that's you this morning, let that be a sign that God is at work in you. And pray for him to make the gospel beautiful to you. Pray for him to make the gospel come alive to you. And for all of us, for all of us who know Jesus, let's join Peter and the saints throughout the ages in just worshiping in awe at the one that we desperately need, the one who graciously saves, and the one who powerfully has made us born again to living hope to the praise of his glorious grace. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.